This podcast, Dr. Andrew Pollard, reader in paediatric infection and immunity, and consultant in charge of the Oxford Vaccine Group, discusses childhood diseases, his research into vaccinations, and the problems facing childhood immunisation in the UK and abroad. What motivated you to study medicine? I guess like many teenagers, I had a fairly, fairly altruistic view of the world as a, at that time and was very keen to do something that uh, made a contribution and helped people. And I, I think perhaps as you get older, you become more cynical about medicine, so it's probably the right time for choosing your careers as when, when you're at your most altruistic as a teenager. And why paediatrics? I think the reason why I chose paediatrics was because there is something rather precious and important about children and there is really someone who was interested in academic medicine, a huge opportunity there to have a big impact both in the UK and also globally, and where actually a large proportion of the world's population are children. And the reason really from there to specialise in infectious diseases was because if you look at global child health, two-thirds of the deaths in children are from infections. Clearly in, in the UK and other developed countries, the main cause of deaths are accidents and cancers. But if we take children as a whole in the world, really infectious diseases is where the burden of both disease and mortality is. So infectious diseases is your main area of research? Both my clinical practice is paediatric infectious diseases um, and also my research area, particularly in understanding how to prevent infections and the way that the body produces an immune response to infections and to vaccines that are used in their prevention. Did you start off as a researcher and then a clinician, or have always been both? No, I have always been interested in understanding the background behind my medical practice. And after medical school, I did some training um, in adult medicine, first of all, before specialising in paediatrics, and uh, then undertook a, a PhD to, in London to undertake a further academic training. So you study the epidemiology of infectious diseases, are such diseases still a major threat in the UK? Um, so I look at the epidemiology of infectious diseases and transmission um, of infections between people, and particularly children, as a tool to understand the impact of vaccine programmes in the UK. Infectious diseases are still a problem in children. In, in very young children there are particular bacteria which are the uh, most common infectious cause of death. But relative to safety, accident prevention programmes. They are relatively unimportant as causes of death in children, but a huge burden still on health services. Uh, each year a vast number of children are admitted to hospital, particularly with diarrhoea and vomiting and with respiratory viral illnesses. And then there are also a small proportion of serious bacterial infections, and that's currently our focus of research is prevention of those serious infections. You mentioned vaccinations. What's immunology and what do we currently immunise children so the, there are 10 different infections that we immunise children against in the UK in the first year of life, and those are diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, polio, a type of meningitis called Hib, another type of meningitis called Men-C, or meningitis C, and measles, mumps and rubella, and also another organism called the pneumococcus, which causes both pneumonia and meningitis, and we have vaccines that prevent seven different types of pneumococcal infection. Several of those that you described, I'm thinking whooping cough and polio, they seem like historical diseases. Are they only still historical because we continue to immunise against them? 
That's absolutely right. That in countries where immunisation programmes break down, as happened when the uh, the former Soviet Union broke up, immunisation programmes break down, and many of the diseases which, as a paediatrician, I don't see at all in the UK, like diphtheria, came back again. So most of these infections are organisms which are still around and will come back if in, if programmes break down. And the only disease that has been eradicated from the world through vaccination so far is smallpox. And we know that unless the supplies in in secure laboratories are released into the wild again, then smallpox won't come back and we we no longer immunise against it. The two other viruses which have the potential for eradication, the first is polio, which is now eradicated from Europe and the Americas, but there are still cases of polio in parts of Asia and Africa. But programmes continue to try and reduce all cases and prevent that. There are concerns about whether polio vaccination can stop in in the foreseeable future because there is some wild-type virus that uh, remains in some individuals who can be carriers for prolonged periods. But in terms of disease in the world, polio is one where eradication is possible. I also mentioned measles because the nature of transmission of measles means that there is the possibility of global prevention but we are so far away still from doing that because the programmes are not nearly as advanced. But just to take an example, using measles, 10 years ago, around about a million children a year died from measles infection. And that was despite having programmes in North America and in Europe that prevented the vast majority of the cases in those regions. So from that you can understand that most of the deaths were in Asia and Africa. And over that last decade the programme to start rolling out measles vaccination in those countries has reduced the global mortality to about 400,000. So there is the huge potential over the coming decade to have a, a major impact on measles and perhaps one day to eradicate it. As we eradicate diseases, do new diseases emerge? There are always new diseases emerging and it's not so much because, at least as far as we're aware, from eradicating diseases through vaccination, it's more that man moves into circumstances where other diseases can affect them. So, for example, moving into new habitats, different ways of living, ways in which we have our food production, instead of being in a very local level, having national distribution and and international distribution, increases the chance of relatively unimportant infections spreading to vast numbers of the population. So there are new diseases evolving all the time. Of course, humans take a minimum of 20, 30 years to reproduce whereas bacteria will reproduce every 20 minutes. So in evolutionary terms, they can adapt much more quickly than we can, and particularly bacteria and viruses are evolving all the time. And perhaps one good example of that is influenza. We've seen a lot on the news over the last few years of influenza viruses. There are some predominant viruses affecting birds, and we know that mutations in those viruses or reassortment with human viruses so you get a sort of a hybrid virus, both those circumstances can result in a new type of influenza virus which could cause pandemics. Are there any diseases that we should be thinking of vaccinating children against in the immediate future? Well, I think uh, the UK has, for, for as an example, has one uh, or two diseases that there are vaccines that are widely used elsewhere in the world that we haven't adopted yet. One example is hepatitis B vaccine. The World Health Organisation recommends that everyone should get and the UK is an outlier in that, one of the last countries in Europe that doesn't have hepatitis B vaccination. Other vaccines that are now widely used, such as chickenpox vaccine, which some countries see chickenpox as not being a particularly important or life-threatening disease, 
we have um, a number of deaths every year in the UK from chickenpox. There's a, there's a big burden of disease in society and that nearly everyone is infected by adulthood. But actually most of the serious cases of disease related to chickenpox are not from chickenpox itself, but from bacteria that invade through the holes in the skin and the throat that are made by the chickenpox rash and that allow these bacteria to get in and cause serious infections. And uh, we do see a number of children in hospital every year who, who are suffering those bacterial complications of chickenpox. Countries that have introduced the vaccine have seen quite rapidly a reduction in the number of cases and disappearance in some communities of the disease. And that has resulted in concerns being raised by public health authorities in the UK that that will risk members of the population who have decided not to be vaccinated having no immunity, giving the potential for epidemics in the future if, if the virus is reintroduced. I think the reality is that what we need is a robust vaccination programmes that reach the vast majority of the population and to, to prevent diseases, particularly those that um, cause serious illness in children. One of the other worries about chickenpox is that we know that after you've been infected with chickenpox, the virus actually stays in your body for the rest of your life and that there are a proportion of the population will get a disease called shingles where the virus comes out um, from where it's hiding in the nerve roots uh, to cause a rash on the skin which mostly is self-limiting and boosts your immunity and eventually disappears. But in older age groups shingles can result in very severe pain that lasts for many months or years after the episode and there's a belief and some good evidence behind it that the rate of shingles is lower in people who are exposed to children with chickenpox whose immunity, their own immunity gets boosted so that the, the virus can't come out and cause shingles until much later in life or, or maybe even not at all. So the concern if we eradicate chickenpox from the population is that all those of us who are adults who haven't had shingles yet will fail to be boosted by exposure to chickenpox in our children and we will all start getting shingles. And for the population as a whole in developed countries if you bring the age of shingles down to the age where people are at work, you could potentially have a big economic impact by people taking off work because of shingles. So one of the arguments for not vaccinating children against chickenpox is that it could risk an increase in the rate of shingles at least for the next century or so in developed countries. And for that reason, vaccine manufacturers have worked very hard over the last few years in developing a shingles vaccine to give to middle-aged and elderly individuals to prevent them getting the very nasty complications of shingles. So by boosting the immunity against chickenpox with a shingles vaccine, uh, the, the virus is unable to come out and cause shingles later on. I think that is something that we may see introduced in many countries because it, it's been shown to be cost-effective to do that. Are government-sponsored programmes of vaccination the norm? There, there are different policies around the world, and both in developing and developed countries. In most of the world, you can buy almost any vaccine on the private market. Some countries have restrictions on exactly which ones are available in, in a particular country. And there is the licensure on different continents means that different ones, different vaccines are available that can be used. So there are certainly some vaccines that are available in Europe that's not available in North America um, and elsewhere. Uh, the purchasing arrangements are very different in different countries. In some the parents will have to buy vaccines for their children. Obviously in the UK, we, for those that are recommended by the Department of Health, there is free availability of them. But that is by no means the same everywhere. Another example of a vaccine which has recently been licensed but not introduced in, in much of Europe is rotavirus vaccine. Rotavirus is a 
the most important cause of hospital admission for, for gastroenteritis, for diarrhoea and vomiting in children um, in the under twos around the world and, and really a very important cause of death. And the reason why it results in hospital admission for children who, some children who develop the illness, is that it very rapidly causes dehydration. And most of the deaths from rotavirus infection are caused by children becoming very dehydrated from loss of fluid through vomiting and diarrhoea. And in the UK, somewhere between about 8 and 15 children a year die from diarrhoea as a result of this very nasty virus infection. It's incredibly infectious. It infects almost everyone by the age of two or three years of age. And it's only a proportion who gets so severely ill with it that they end up in hospital. But each year we have a well-recognised rotavirus season in all children's hospitals where the wards are full of children who are dehydrated from uh, that infection. How expensive would it be to put that vaccine in the general immunisation programme? So one of the differences about immunisation programmes compared with much of the other aspects of health in developed countries is that there is incredible scrutiny on cost, perhaps even an overemphasis on cost rather than the benefits for children particularly in, in our society. And it's very easy to introduce new drugs, perhaps getting harder um, in the UK with much more scrutiny from NICE. But certainly until recently, it was relatively easy to change all sorts of aspects of treatment, surgical treatment and medical treatment, without much scrutiny. And I think NICE has changed that framework considerably recently. But for a long time, immunisation has been under a spotlight and there has to be justification on cost-effectiveness grounds for, for introduction. And for some vaccines, those models are just not available yet, which is why they haven't been introduced. But in others, they have. And a good example of that is the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is being introduced this summer to prevent cervical cancer in girls. And it's going to be given to all girls in their early adolescence, and including with it a catch-up campaign for teenagers in the UK. And that has to be hugely welcomed and is driven partly by the cost-effectiveness model that preventing cervical cancer in women, which is a common cancer, not now but in, in the years to come, will have a huge impact for society on, and the cost burden, even though it's quite an expensive vaccine. What about the ethical question of the parents' right to, to say, I don't want this vaccine for their children? Do you mean particularly the cervical cancer vaccine or vaccines As an example, in general? But in general. Well, of course, the human papillomavirus vaccine for cervical cancer has additional issues around it in that cervical, uh, or at least the virus which causes cervical cancer, the human papillomavirus, is a sexually transmitted virus. And that brings in a whole um, set of other concerns for parents on moral grounds and religious grounds around those vaccines. But in general, the UK policy is that in young children who are not able to make their own choice about vaccination, so particularly babies and toddlers, the decision is with the parents. And as health professionals, we provide advice, and there's a lot of very good advice from the government, from the Department of Health, on different aspects of immunisation programmes. But other countries have adopted different approaches where there is, for example, a legal requirement for attending nursery or school to prove vaccination status and the need for signatures from a physician to explain why you haven't got that if you want to attend. And th there isn't good evidence that one system or another works better. And I think that, that perhaps we're a, a more liberal society than others and feel parents should have some role in the choice around that. I think one of the difficulties for health professionals is that we're so much more immersed in managing the diseases and seeing children dying from some of the diseases we're trying to prevent. 
and it's very easy for us to be passionate about giving vaccines but for parents they don't see these diseases particularly those older ones that, that as you pointed out before are either eradicated or at least very rare in Europe and for parents to give their child a noxious substance with a needle that doesn't seem to have any obvious benefit apart from the pain sometimes the fevers and the sore arm or leg that it causes their child is difficult for them to do and it's frustrating in a way for us when, when parents do refuse vaccination because we have this strong belief on that despite the potential harm that can be caused by any intervention, including fevers and allergic reactions and so on, huge benefits of vaccination outweigh that in our mind. But it's much more difficult for parents to weigh up those issues because they don't see the other side. If a child wanted to then get the vaccinations that the parents decided weren't for them, can they do that? So people can make their own decisions as adults and then there is a period when people become competent to make decisions uh, where they can make choices for themselves. And in medical care, the test for that is called gillic competence and that relates to their ability to understand and simulate the information and make decisions for themselves. And doctors are very familiar with the issues around consent for treatment in those individuals who reach that level of competence. And it, it certainly is common for teenagers to make their own choices. And I know people dealing a lot with teenagers will, will face those issues a lot. In my area of research, it's all very much less clear because there, there isn't a legal framework yet around competence for participation in research. And so as, as good practice, for example, in a vaccine trial, we would take consent from a teenager, but we'd also take consent from their parents. Whereas in the medical setting of a treatment, it would only be a requirement to have consent from a competent teenager. So what is your research going on at Oxford at the moment? Uh, well, I have two main research groups. I have a, a group that's involved in clinical trials of vaccines, looking both at new vaccines that um, are becoming available to see whether they're appropriate for our population in the UK and sometimes to test very new vaccines, see if they could be used anywhere um, in the world. And we also look at modifications of vaccines that are designed to combine vaccines together or perhaps to improve safety of vaccines. And those are studies which are done not just in Oxford, but we conduct across the Thames Valley. So is it possible to combine multiple vaccinations in one shot? Yes. So, uh, in fact, the, there is always a, a dilemma between putting everything together so there's only one needle required and keeping things split apart because there's a public view that combining vaccines might be harmful. Why are some parents reluctant to give their children combination vaccines? And so I think the, the concern is that um, if you put too much into a vaccine, but parents have heard this term, there's, there's a lot written about it, called immune overload, and an and idea that the immune system won't be able to cope. And so parents often ask me whether they can separate out the vaccines rather than having them all in one needle. And I think, certainly for the child, if you ask them, I'm sure they would prefer to have one needle rather than many. The rationale behind that is that there is an idea that the immune system somehow can't cope with fighting lots of different things at the same time and providing immune response against many different types of infection at the same time. The reality, though, is that the immune system has an amazing capacity. So, for example, I talked about the the 5-in-1 vaccine, when I listed that some of the vaccines that are used as a 5-in-1 given to babies at 2 months and 3 months and 4 months of age, and that contains diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough, polio, 
and the hip meningitis vaccine. So it contains five different components and within those there are several components of the three different types of poliovirus and uh, there are five different types of protein from the whooping cough bug. So within that vaccine, it's called the five-in-one, but the diff- there are rather more components than five. It's probably um, near 10 or 15 components. But if we just went back a few years and looked at the, the whooping cough vaccine that was used then, which was made from the whole germ rather than just some purified proteins from the germ, that contained about 3,500 different proteins. So the vaccines then, instead of being a 10 to 15 component vaccine, were 3,500 proteins. So the idea that by combining more things together, we're causing immune overload is is nonsense. What what we're doing is using very purified products that we know will induce immunity that prevents infections, but actually limiting the number to the minimum that's really required. And I think when we take another step back and look at what our bodies are responding to all, all the time, Within our body, we have more bacterial cells infecting us, living on our surfaces inside our gut and in our throat, than we have human cells. So, you know, sitting in front of me, looking at you, there are there are more bacterial cells than human cells. Probably somewhere around ten to the thirteen or ten to the eleven bacterial cells, and you know, a few logs less of human cells. And I think that that is a you know, perhaps the best example of how actually our immune system is coping with all of that all the time. And to add a few other injected components in a vaccine really is, is not a problem for the immune system. The problem, I think, is making sure that when we develop new vaccines that they are balanced in a way that they don't interfere with each other to produce a less good immune response. So the vaccines are used at the moment, that's been very carefully looked at and they do protect, protect children against these serious infections. Does your justification and rationale usually allay the fears of the parents? Um, I think it does with with most parents, but of course I, I don't get to sit in front of everyone to have a, a detailed discussion with them. I think the other the other area that there are has been a lot of concern about is the combined measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, and those concerns arose because of some studies conducted during the nineteen nineties, looking at the rates of um, autism in children who had a particular type of bowel problem. And one hypothesis that was raised at the time was that measles might have been the cause of the problems in those children, particularly the autism, and indeed that the measles vaccine itself was the problem. There wasn't any proof that the vaccine was involved and the hypothesis was raised really without anything to suggest that that might be the cause. And really the research that's been conducted since has squashed the, the hypothesis. And in some senses, to raise a hypothesis is not an inappropriate thing to do. That's you know, what many scientists do. They raise a hypothesis and they test it. The problem really was the impact that had because of the way that the media drove that process that resulted in many parents not vaccinating their children. During the 1990s, we went through, I think, a, a 10- or 12-year period with no deaths from measles at all. And just in the last few years, we've had two children die from measles because parents haven't been vaccinating their children against this disease. Measles really is a terrible disease. When, when the measles was a big problem before vaccination started, in the UK somewhere around 1 in 2,000 children died from it and a similar number developed some type of brain damage as a result. In poorer populations, such as in Africa at the moment, somewhere between 1 in 100 and 1 in 200 children will die from measles. And those figures really put into perspective how important that vaccine is in preventing disease. 
some parents are still worried about the link with autism and are not convinced by the huge amount of research that's been done comparing populations for ruminized and those who aren't shown that there's the same rate of autism in both, that there's no time linking between giving the vaccine and people's diagnosis of autism. You'd just as like to be diagnosed the week before you have the vaccine as the week after. So that all of these are very compelling bits of evidence that there is no link and there isn't really any good scientific hypothesis way to link the two together. But what we do know is that measles is a killer. As I said earlier on, very many children in the world die from measles still. And it's a great shame that in a country where we can afford to give the vaccine, that children will die. Has media coverage made your job more difficult in many situations? I think in, in recruiting for clinical trials, the, the scares about the measles vaccine certainly had a, had a big impact. And you may remember a few years ago the uh, phase one trial of a new drug that was undertaken at Northwick Park Hospital uh, resulted in a number of individuals being, becoming severely ill during that trial and some of them losing some fingers as a result of it. And at the time that happened, parents understandably were concerned about their children being in trials, although there's no connection whatsoever between that drug trial and, and the vaccine trials that we conduct. So certainly media coverage of major medical events um, has a big impact on both the, the, our ability to conduct trials, but also in clinical practice, parents' fears about um, their children. And these clinical trials are conducted with commercial companies? So most of the trials that we conduct in young children will be with commercial companies. And the, the reason for that, although we, we would like to be developing our own vaccines, that the cost to get from a product that we've developed in the laboratory to the early trials we've done in adults is just about affordable um, with public funding. But to get from there to a product which could be tested in very young children, it has to have reached the, the, the level of testing that involves many individuals and manufacturing to, to uh, standards that are required by regulators. That means it's actually almost impossible for a new vaccine developed in an academic setting to reach those large-scale trials in children. So we almost entirely work with industry for, for studies in young children. Earlier phase studies in adults are conducted you know, without commercial funding. So how do you ensure you maintain academic freedom, autonomy and independence? We're very lucky in Oxford in having a research services department who work very closely with us and with industry over many years that uh, developed a contractual arrangement with industry where we maintain our academic independence and written into that is that, for example, when we write up the results of a study, that we have full editorial control over the manuscript and independence, uh, that we have independent statistical review of all the data so no analysis can be done by the company that, that we don't also repeat ourselves. And so we maintain our integrity in the data analysis and so on by keeping separate from them. We also have a policy that no one in my research group accepts any funding personally from industry. And increasingly, um, you'll see in the, the newspapers concerns about doctors receiving payments from industry for conducting trials. For us, we feel that it's very difficult to go out and persuade parents to take part in a study if we ourselves are being paid by the company who you know, will benefit in the future by that uh, vaccine being marketed. So we don't accept any personal payments from industry for that reason. What we do when we provide consultancy to industry, which uh, my view is that that's very important, that, that we as academics are helping to drive that agenda and uh, development in industry um, for the benefit of children, 
that we would then ask the industry if they were going to make a payment that they make that to an, um, an educational fund in the university rather than to an independent thing. How easy is it to get participants for these clinical trials? That's very much a, a changing feast over time and it depends on the type of study and how attractive it is, what diseases are being prevented. So studies that are on vaccines to prevent meningitis, for example, tend to recruit better than studies looking at new combinations of vaccines that children are already receiving. And so it certainly makes a difference depending on the type of study. The numbers of blood tests that are required or the number of injections also will, will affect uptake. Currently, we find that probably less than 5% of parents that we write to will take part in a clinical trial. And so for most studies we were doing babies of three or 400 babies, you can imagine that that is many thousands of letters that, that get sent out. Our recruitment method is to approach families by mail and not to um, talk to them face to face and wait for them to come back to us. And we feel that's important, uh, that we really want people who have read the information that we've sent and really want to participate and want their children in the trials to come back to us rather than encourage people to take part by sort of using a marketing approach to obtain support but actually then find that people are not fully committed to the trial because these are very difficult decisions for parents to make. Have any of the vaccinations that you've developed in these trials been rolled out? So a, a number of the vaccines that uh, that have been involved in trials since the, the early days of the Oxford Vaccine Group, which I currently lead, started in 1992 and trials of uh, the hip meningitis vaccine uh, were done uh, by the group and that vaccine was introduced in the early 1990s. Uh, the group's also been involved in the meningitis C vaccine trials, which was introduced in 1999, in the pneumococcal meningitis and pneumonia vaccine, which I mentioned, which was introduced in 2006, and then a booster vaccine, which was introduced also in 2006, that can boost the immunity against Hib and Men-C meningitis. The last type of meningitis that is a major burden in the UK is meningitis B, and currently about 85% of meningitis in the UK of, of that particular family of bugs is caused by meningitis B. And uh, we're currently involved in clinical trials looking at a new vaccine that could prevent that disease. That's several thousand cases a year. And so we're hopeful that, that this vaccine will have an impact against meningitis B and would be a, a real public health breakthrough if it does. What's the timescale of the meningitis B trial? So these trials usually enrol babies at the age of two months and then they have a number of vaccines in the first year of life. So we don't know the results of a trial until a year or more after the last baby's been enrolled. So usually it's a few years from the start of a trial before we have um, an answer. You mentioned you also have a second area of research. So I, I have a laboratory group where we look at uh, two different aspects really. We have a programme developing a new vaccine against meningitis B, not the one we're currently studying in trials, but a, another variety of that vaccine, um, which we're developing at the moment and we hope to test in adults um, in the next day, couple of years. And I also have a, a group that looks at the development of immunity in children. We give most of our vaccines to infants, but we understand relatively little about how infants respond to vaccines and the type of immune response they make. Certainly the best responses to vaccines are in older children and adults. But of course most of the disease that we're trying to prevent is in young children. So immunisation programmes really have to be focused in, in early childhood in order to uh, prevent serious infections that we're trying to prevent. 
So what we have to do is try and understand the immune response and how we can best target our immunisation schedules, the numbers of doses and the spacing of them, and also the, the age at which we give them to give the optimum immune response and provide the best protection of the population. Your office is based in the Children's Hospital here in Oxford. Do you also treat patients? Yes, my clinical trials group is over at the Churchill Hospital and uh, that's where the laboratory is and, and the clinical trials operation. But I also spend half of my time over here in the Children's Hospital where I run the paediatric infectious disease service in the hospital. You regularly remain a, a clinician? Yes, so I, you know, in fact I've just been on call for the bank holiday weekend for general paediatrics. For me it's important to keep in touch with the, the real world of paediatrics uh, particularly in working in vaccine prevention. The diseases that we're trying to prevent I see every day on the wards and it provides me with uh, the inspiration and the drive to uh, continue to work in the development of vaccines that prevent these infections which do kill children, um, even in Oxford. You mentioned earlier about being able to afford to get vaccines. Are you doing any work with developing countries? So I, I have a, a research programme in Nepal, um, in South Asia, where we're looking at the burden of uh, many of the bacterial infections that uh, cause serious disease and or did in this country that we now vaccinate against. And we've been particularly interested in the pneumococcus, this bug that can cause meningitis and pneumonia. And as I mentioned before, the UK introduced a vaccine against pneumococcus in 2006. And we've already seen a big reduction in disease caused by the strains of pneumococcus that the vaccine prevents, which is very exciting good news for children in the UK. The disease in Nepal is much more common than it, than it ever was in the UK and although we've prevented many cases through this vaccine in the UK, if the Nepalese government could afford a vaccine that even gave partial protection against the disease it would have a much bigger impact than it ever could in the UK. Vaccines work best in the places where most of the disease is and most of the disease is, is of course in the developing world that can least afford those vaccines. How much support have you had from funding bodies and the Nepalese government? We've had funding uh, from a, an organisation which gets its funding from the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunisation, which has funding from Bill Gates and from governments behind it. And that funding has been very important in, in driving that process. The Nepalese government are not really in a position to fund the type of research that we're doing in their country with local collaborators there. But they're very keen on seeing the data and helping them to work with the World Health Organisation to plan immunisation programmes. What sort of timescale for rolling out vaccines to Nepal, for instance? My job won't be rolling out the vaccines to Nepal, but I, I hope the data we produce will feed into decision-making by the Nepalese government with, with the World Health Organisation Regional Office to make decisions about this particular vaccine. One piece of good news is that next year the uh, hip meningitis vaccine will be rolled out in Nepal with funding help from uh, through the World Health Organization. And so that particular type of meningitis hopefully will start to disappear in that country. So in, in, in our studies in Nepal, where we've been looking at these important bacterial infections in children, and we really focused on the diseases that uh, there are vaccines available for at the moment. But we also, as a result of doing the studies, identified other serious infections in children and it turns out in the hospital we're working in, the most common bacterial infection of children is typhoid. And there are large numbers of cases on the ward and also in the outpatient setting, as many as 20% of children in uh, some of the seasons 
will have typhoid in their blood uh, when they come with a temperature. And I think it brings home you know, one of the really, really sad facts about immunisation, that we've had the technology to prevent typhoid as a disease for several decades, but actually no company has moved forwards until recently to try and develop a vaccine for developing country populations against typhoid because there is no marketplace there at the moment. Clearly the other way of preventing typhoid is to improve water supplies, but those are much more major infrastructure problems for large cities, particularly in Asia, in order to, to overcome the disease, whereas vaccine programmes are already in place and uh, would be very effective probably in eradicating typhoid from those populations if, if again, they could be rolled out.